recipe head notes. What are they? Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Andrea Nguyen, and today my three co-hosts, Molly Stevens, Kate Leahy, Kristen Donnelly, and I are talking head notes. The term head notes is kind of weird. They're basically recipe introductions, but when I started writing recipes, I envisioned post-it notes in my head that I had to somehow make sense on the page. Head notes can seem complicated, but they don't have to be. In fact, there are many ways to approach writing solid, interesting head notes. Hey there. Hey. Hey, Hey, Andrea. So I just shared some of my initial experiences with head note writing. What were yours like? We're talking about cookbooks on this podcast, but my first headnote experience was in magazine writing. And then from there, I went to work for hire, where it was a very limited word count, very specific. And then my next two experiences doing headnotes for cookbooks were both collaborative, where it was not my voice, but it was writing headnotes in someone else's voice. That was a lot of different training for when it became my turn to write headnotes for my own book. Yeah, I had the same thing where it was I guess I started writing headnotes with magazines, except for I did do a little bit of my own like recipe development and writing and playing around. But for magazines, it was interesting because a lot of the stories we did were with chef's recipes or somebody else's recipes. And so you could take this journalistic approach and talk to them and get quotes. And usually the more quotable the person, the better the headnote came out. But then there were sometimes these recipes and usually they're like really simple everyday recipes. But you're like, what am I going to say about this? You know, and that's where you end up with these like the blah, 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 brings out the blah, blah, blah of blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Serve it with some crusty bread. Exactly. Serve it with crusty bread. (laughs) A a side salad. We'll finish this meal. Yeah, I think I think what's hard for me to remember my first experience writing headnotes is that I it was my first experience writing any kind of recipe. So I was I was new to the ingredient list. I was new to the method. I was new to the headnotes. And so I think I didn't really think of the headnotes as specifically as I do now. Now it's, they're, they're so crucial, but I think then I was just trying to get through and what I did, um, and I think this is, you know, Molly and Kristen, I'm echoing you a little bit, is that uh, my first book was writing somebody else's voice. So I basically was interviewing that chef all the time on the phone, talking about this recipe. What about this idea? And then I would also rely on my own experience within that restaurant to kind of pull out some ideas. So I feel like I just muddled through the first draft and then fixed it on the second draft. But I didn't really think of headnotes and their place until probably much later in my writing career. It's a funny term, too. I've spoken to some non-cookbook people about, and I've said, oh, we're going to be talking about headnotes. And they're like, what's a headnote? It's a very specific thing. It's and then we, we don't say recipe introduction because that's different. It's a very specific, it's the chunk of text that comes after a recipe title. I mean, this is in standard recipe construct, but after the recipe title and before either the list of ingredients or the procedure, however it's laid out. Yeah, it is very specific. Yet nowadays, the term headnotes is thrown around in books all the time. And in And in just like casual conversation, or did you read the recipe headnote? And I always think, oh my God, people know what the hell that is. Mm. (laughs) But yet we've all had practice on many different levels. I feel like it's almost like this, you know, funnel effect in terms of how we've learned to write effective headnotes. So we're going to dive in today to talk about headnotes. 
and what they are, what purpose they serve, their different formats. So to kind of like warm up for our conversation today, I opened up one of my favorite books, Edna Lewis's The Taste of Country Cooking. I just randomly opened up a page to a recipe. There was a head note. I'm just going to read it to you guys because I, it was just, you know, total coincidence. This is what Edna Lewis wrote for a recipe, summer apple pie. The apple pie that I remember was made from fresh homemade applesauce, sweetened to taste and flavored generously with freshly grated nutmeg. The seasoned applesauce was spooned into a pastry-lined pie plate and covered with a top crust. When baked and completely cool, the pies were removed from each pan and stacked one upon the other. When the pie was sliced, you were served a wedge with three layers. 69 words. She covers so much. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting to me about that? It's so much passive voice, which is like a writing no-no to say like, this was spooned, this was served. And yet it's so evocative and beautiful. Yeah. And so few adjectives in there. It's just straight up fact. It's a beautiful story, right? Mm -hmm. And you can taste it. You can kind of think of those flavors in your head and think, I know what this is, what she's aiming this recipe to convey in flavor too. And that texture you get by stacking the pies, they, they because they're stacked as they cool. So you get this dense texture of the applesauce that's been cooked and, you know, compressed as it cools. It is so evocative and it's, it's economical in terms of the words that Anna Lewis chose for that. And you think that you know everything there is about apple pie until you read this head note. And then you're like, hey, I want to know more about that recipe. Do you guys have other fun examples of head notes that you guys like? I have a couple. Paula Wolfert, I also did the same thing where I just opened to a page and the beginning of the head note made me laugh aloud because... It's just a very specific scenario. So it says, if you've seen octopus drawing on clotheslines in Greece, Spain, and Tunisia and wondered what they do with it, here's a recipe. And to be honest, I I forgot to write down what the recipe is, but I was was like, did she intend to be funny? (laughs) That's totally her voice. I can hear her saying just that. I loved it. Yeah, it does so many things. It's Mm -hmm. one, it's funny. There's an image of these and anybody's ever traveled has seen that. But she's also telling you that she has traveled to these places and seen this and it's a regular occurrence. And so I think one of the ones that I came up with was a Marcella Hazan. And again, same thing, just opened it up. And this is for her smothered onion sauce. The sweet pungency of onion is the whole story of this sauce. To draw out its character, the onion is first stewed very slowly for almost an hour. It goes on a little bit. She ends with, if you have no problem using lard, it will considerably enrich the sauce. You may, however, use butter as a substitute. And there's such deep experience there. And this is why I brought it up after the Paula Wolford. It's just, you know, it's such a voice of authority without being authoritative. You know, with those examples, you guys, when you think of head notes, when you're writing a head note, do you break them down into different kinds of head notes as you're like going in? to draft that head note, you're like, I want to hit this point. I want to hit that point. Functionally, what kind of head notes do you think of when you're putting one together? I mean, my favorite is to read and to write are the ones that can start with a story. It doesn't always have to be like a nostalgic story. It could be a story of what happened during the development process. I don't always do that, though, because there's not always a great story. Unfortunately, like I could make one up. But for me, I'm like, if I have a story, I want to tell the story. 
What about you, Kate? It definitely depends on the recipe, but uh, I think you want variety in your your head notes. So if you've done a chapter and you read all your head notes and they all start with a very evocative story, it almost slows down the book and makes it feel like if every single recipe starts with octopus drying on a clothesline, it's going to be a tough, you know, it's just tough, tougher for people to dive in and really want to cook from it. You want to have that evocative story, but then maybe it's followed with a story that's a nuts and bolts story about like how to actually achieve this flavor, why you would want to do it. And then you'd have maybe another head note that can talk about something that isn't so wonderful, but how you had to overcome this, you know, something to to make this recipe great. So you can balance out your head notes and that can come later in the second draft or a third draft. But um, I think that the best way to start with recipes is just the bullet points of what you really want to convey. And then you can go back and look and say, are all of these evocative stories or are all of these too much like how to's? Because those are important too, but you want to have, you want to season those through through the book. So I think looking at it from a balanced perspective and making sure that the length is also varied. So I think there's a lot of ways to look at it. But the first thing, like what Kristen says, like you want to do what comes to your mind. And if it's that story, that story might be the lead, but they don't all need those stories. Early when we first started talking about cookbooks, like why are you writing a cookbook? Why should this book exist? What's the reason for the book? For me, a head note is an, an opportunity for you to answer that question for yourself, why is this recipe in the book? That to me is where the head note starts. And it might be it's there to solve a problem. And the problem might be, you know, it's the chapter on beans and you want a quick bean recipe, or it might just serve a purpose. It might be a very personal story. But what is the reason you chose to put that recipe in your book? And that's, for me, the purpose of a head note. It's also, and Andrew, you talk about this a lot, it's the hook. We could talk about recipe titles at another, and I, and I think we should, because those are also <laughs> very difficult and can be very closely tied to head notes. So Molly, now I've been thinking single subject books. So you and I have written single subject, and Kristen just came out with a rice book. And you too, Kate, you wrote like a wine book. So we've got wine, rice, braising, roasting, dumplings, you know, kvap on me, tofu. Okay, so here's the thing. Say you're writing like a single subject book. How are you going to make those head notes about one subject so exciting to people so that there is that hook, right? Yeah. That's kind of tricky rather than here's a dessert chapter. Here's, you know, it's not a survey thing. It's like one subject. How do you do that? What would you do in, in rice? in your new rice book, Kristen. Wish I had it in front of me so I could like really page through it. (laughs) I did the book with Lotus Foods and they work with farm cooperatives all over the world. So some of the recipes either came from the farm cooperatives or they sent me things that they cook and I developed a recipe around it. So of course with that, there's story, which is great. But there's also, I guess I thought of some situations like you wanna make this when you're in the mood for X, like a lot of vegetables. Yeah, it's funny with that book because that book was so much about the variety of rice there are um, in the world and all the ways you can use it. Even though it was single subject, I never felt stymied by like, oh, another head note about rice, you know. Okay, that is something about single subject books. The same thing I did a potato cookbook and people so often said, oh, my God, like it's over 300 recipes with potatoes. Yeah, this is only 65. Oh, my God. So, and, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. But people would, you know, most often comment, oh, God, you know, how did especially people who make cookbooks, didn't you get tired of the potatoes? And the thing I think you discover when you do a deep dive, and this is off topic of headnotes, but headnotes can serve this, is that rice, potatoes, these staple foods, these foods, once you go deep 
there's no end of the variety of what you can do. And that there's so much joy and beauty and discovery in that, that you're suddenly like, no, the only reason if you're bored with rice, it's because you haven't learned enough cool things to do with it, or, you know, you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. How for you, Andrea? I mean, you've done so many single subject books. Did that feel challenging for you when you approached your head notes? Yeah. Another bun me filling. What do I do now? Another <laughs> pickle. Oh, another pho. <laughs> How do you make it phenomenal, right? So when I curate my recipe list, there's a reason for every single recipe. And there's a reason why I love every single recipe. And I think when people say, oh, well, which recipe do you like the most in the book? I was like, I really love them all. And I am not joking. So when I fall in love with something or some concept, I'm like, I'm going to sell, 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 because I really want you to also fall in love with this dish and to also make it. So there is always that hook, as Molly mentioned earlier. You know, I think about service because I think recipes are service, right? And we talk about service as like this functional thing. How do people make this dish? How can we inspire them and inform them? And if there's some kind of story, some kind of personal memory to put in there, that works too. I'm oftentimes writing information that people have no idea about culturally or historically. So I have to tuck that in there. It's almost like, you know, you're like making a little sculpture and it has to like be functional and it has to be appealing. And that's how you get people to like actually make it, to motivate and then activate them to go forward. It's kind of amazing what can be said about tofu. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I often think of the head note as the cell. It's the cell to encourage somebody to make the recipe and yes, make it appealing. And I've learned over the years that sometimes what I find a really appealing, I'll have editors like circle this and be like, this does not sound good to me. Like I, I tend to like really earthy <laughs> flavors. And I think I talked about something reminding me of the spring when everything smells like damp earth. And I, I said that in a recipe and she was like, no. This does not sound good to me. Um, I could have left it, but I think I should, like I changed it a little bit. Have you had that experience? Well, I think you get that experience when you're writing, when you're working as a co-author, because you'll learn that you're uh, maybe the lead author. If you're working with a chef or a food personality, they'll have words that they just absolutely hate. And sometimes you won't know what those words are until you put it in a head note. And yeah, there's a lot of people who hate moist, that word moist. But sometimes maybe you just wrote that this, you know, is very moist and then they go, go, no, I hate that word. And then you just you just delete it from your vocabulary for that, that book project. Um, but some of the words that they don't like can su surprise you sometimes. Sure. So um, that's that's one way. But, you know, I was thinking about what you can do with a headnote. And um, the conversation that Molly and I had with Adam Roberts was really great for that. It's an earlier episode. You can go back to listen to it if you missed it. But he talked about how it's harder to write a headnote than it is an essay because you don't have that much space to put all the stuff that you want to say about it how he crafted headnotes for his um, Give My Swiss Chards to Broadway cookbook. It was really a collaboration between Broadway trivia and his, his author, Gideon Glick, and putting in really specific recipe-focused things. I mean, the, the headnotes are a delight to read, and you really get both uh, authors' personality through. So that's another thing about headnotes. It's not only getting people to want to cook that recipe, but also getting to share a little bit of insight in your own personality with also keeping the parameters that you don't want to go too long. Like, you want people to get to the recipe. You don't want to take up three pages talking about your, your grandmother's pot roast, and then they're like, I've been reading so much, I didn't even get to the pot roast recipe. So that's that balance. Act. 
I think that that's really great when you're writing something that is incredibly familiar to people. Let's say a meatloaf or a tuna casserole and introducing your tweak to it. When you're putting together a recipe that comes from, you know, that's inspired by a different culture or you're doing a riff on it or you're trying to describe something that people are culturally unfamiliar with in a cuisine, that's where it gets like all of those bullet points you were talking about. Kate, all of a sudden there's like 12 or 15 of them and they are overwhelming. And, you know, you've had to like very skillfully put those historical and cultural tidbits in. Honestly, when I'm writing a henote without making my eyes or the cook's eyes glaze over. Right. How do you do that balancing act, Andrea? If I get a chapter opener, Kate, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because sometimes you don't have space for a chapter opener for that chapter introduction. Then I've written like super long head notes and then I've like poured all of my soul into it. And then at the end of the line, it's like, holy mackerel, I have to trim, trim, trim. It's not like there's much fat there to trim. It's all lean. And so if I do have space, I can put it in a chapter opener. There are things in evergreen Vietnamese, for example, where we came up with uh, what are called bursts in margins, where I can tuck extra bits of information there, whether it is a little technique or uh, some kind of cultural information so that people can just kind of see this little extra thing that is in the layout and design. So there are all kinds of tricks that you can think about when you're putting together a headnote where the headnote is not just on the page right above the recipe, but it's laying in different areas of the page and other areas of the book. But it is, it's hard. Does that part come later after you've written the headnote? Does that part come in the design part? Or do you think of those bursts while you're in the Word document? Sometimes I think of bursts in the the Word document and I'll just say burst. And then other times, finally layout, we can't have something somewhere else. So I'm just like trim, burst. I'll say we will reframe that idea as a burst or I'll move something somewhere else. And the thing is that, you know, on the other hand, I oftentimes think, do I, am I, it's just TMI, too much information. And Molly and I recently spoke to Ali Slagle, who writes very, very short headnotes of, you know, her beautiful little twists on classics. So there's so many ways of doing this. But again, the headnote is that cell. It's also, we've talked about this before, but it's it's your biggest opportunity to, to express your voice. I mean, I, I work so hard on headnotes. I mean, that's where the writing part just comes in heavy, heavy, heavy. And the editing of them, for me, because my they tend to be too long, it's going through and figuring out what doesn't need to be there, what could go elsewhere, what's missing from it. I remember we talked about stories, and I remember a headnote that I wrote for my braising book, all about braising, and it was a recipe about quail, and it was quail and grapes, and a kind of a classic combination. And I left out this whole story about time I spent in France and, you know, vineyards and this and that. And suddenly the whole head note shifted and it became that story as opposed to just describing this dish. And, you know, sometimes I find I over describe a dish when I write head notes. And especially now as books tend to be more and more illustrated with photographs, the description might be less and less important in, in the cell because Maybe you're lucky enough and they're looking at a forward-facing photo of this beautiful dish. So then why does the headnote say, 
you know, this combines leeks and cannellini beans and caramelized onions because you're looking at a picture of those three things. And so then the head note is what? Is it just a little poem about the dish? Yeah. Is it, you know, when you love to serve it? And and I think the most dangerous thing, and we'll, we'll talk later about like pet peeves, is to write a head note that's meaningless. Or it reiterates like basically what's in the recipe. I've totally done that. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll catch yes, it later. Absolutely. I wanted to um, bring up Nigel Slater in his Green Feast series. Every recipe fits on a page. So all of his head notes are one line. And they're all these little pieces of poetry, which is just so cool. Deep drifts of mash, toasted, smoky vegetables. That's it. That was for artichokes, winter roots, and smoked salts. I like it. It's very spare. It just shows like what a head note can be, you know? I love the brevity of what Nigel Slater does in his work. And they are dishes, they're recipes that are just him. They're they're kind of nebulous in a way, right? They there isn't like a particular culture or cuisine that he's like trying to there it, that level of authenticity is not what he's going after the authenticity is his personal experience in his kitchen exactly yep and people understand that because of his brand and because mm-hmm. of his voice so i think that that is really important to understand whereas like someone like chris and i recently spoke to eric kim about korean american you know, he's like, like moving all these little parts in his head notes and telling people, yeah, you know, this is like my way of making a Korean take on kimchi fried rice, you know, and it's like different from my mother's. And, and he's telling like this very interesting story of his family through the book. And so his, his head notes are part of a story arc. Right. And so there's like so many ways that we can structure had notes. And sometimes when going back to Edna Lewis's book, you know, that book was written in, you know, decades ago. Not all of her recipes have head notes. Do you guys ever dream of writing a book with some head notes, but not always a head note in every recipe? I think it makes so much sense to to think about head notes that not because it what happens is that these books then end up, even if if you look on a line level, they're not cookie cutter books. They look from the outside as cookie cutter books because you have the recipe name. And then underneath it, it's a head note that runs, I don't know, 200 to 300 words or so. And then there's the the ingredients and then the instructions. And if you just page through a lot of books, they sometimes all start looking the same. So what gets you to look deeper? Maybe it's that variety where you have a big head note and then you have like three small recipes underneath that don't need individual head notes because they're all part of a theme. And that goes back to how books probably were made before when it was common to not have any head notes. So maybe Edna Lewis was breaking ground by having those evocative head notes in, in her book. Well, I think back to James Beard's books and there's head notes sometimes and sometimes there aren't. And the head notes are often indistinguishable from the method. I actually just pulled out Silver Palette mm-hmm. recently to see what they were doing. And it's the same thing that some recipes have head notes and some do not. And it's, you know, chicken with lemon and herbs. No head note, no photo, just there's a recipe for chicken with lemon and herbs because 
pretty self-explanatory what it is. It's it's interesting. And I think you're right. We get to a point now where we expect this sort of cookie cutter. It is true with something like chicken with um, lemon and herbs, because I could see writing that head note and it being that balloon of nothing <laughs> that Molly talked about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> but there's tons of sidebars in that yeah. book, too. So and I, I think of something that you were talking about, Andrea, the appeal of these incredibly concise, almost poetic, the Nigel Slater, Ali Slater style, because they're similar. And they're, I, she admitted that she is influenced by him. But if I open an Andrea Nguyen book, I am looking for instruction. I expect this voice of the teacher to teach me as I cook. I'm not saying you know that, that that's a mold that can't be broken, but that is a promise often of those books. And I, I, I think that I write the same way. It depends on the promise of the book, right? Doesn't it? Right. And and what the voice is. I think we're going to see more and more playing around with headnotes. I was thinking about the small victories that Julia Tertian did. And that title of the book, in each headnote, she mentions this is the small victory that's in this. And it's 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 an incredible construct to carry through a whole book, but it's a, just a clever use of re-dreaming up what a headnote mm. can and should be, I think. How do you approach, in general, writing a headnote? When I was working on uh, my book, Wine Style, I made the recipe list because I had to have enough recipes for every sort of wine style. So if I had a rosé chapter, I wanted recipes that worked well with rosé. And so I knew every headnote had to explain why that recipe was in the rosé chapter and not in the picnic red wine chapter. And I could mention that it can go with these other wines, but the key was the why it's in this chapter. So it's not like you can write a head note saying this recipe is in this chapter because you have to be a little bit more evocative. Um, you want to give your reader the benefit of the doubt that they're smart. They, they don't need you to over explain things. But that was the tricky part was finding that balance of making sure I was packing the wine information in there and packing in the information on how to make this dish. And have the recipe fit on the same page. And, you know, there were certain things that got cut. I wanted to have a little thing about how you could make your own pickled ginger. And that just didn't fit. There was too much I was trying to pack into that simple recipe. So it got cut. So because that book was a single subject, every recipe had to pair with wine. It did give me the direction for headnotes and a recipe that didn't fit. I wouldn't write a headnote for it because it wouldn't be in that chapter. It wouldn't be in the book. So in a way, the story in the headnote was key to just that recipe. When you're working on a book, how does the design of a book inform your headnotes? In my experience so far, it's usually the design is done around the manuscript. But yes, um, there might be overage. There might be text that goes over what they allotted. And that's when you trim or create these bursts. I end up putting a lot of things in the margin. Like it'll be like a little note in the margin and it tends to be like a substitution information or a little bit uh, more explanation about a certain ingredient in the recipe. I don't think I've worked on a book where it was designed first. This is an instance with my last book, All About Dinner, that after design, we then went back and a lot of the head notes talked about what you might serve this with. Since it was a dinner book, it was talking about meal creation. There was also a lot of if you want to get ahead, which is, you know, something that I that's the kind of information that might be in a help a head note to make it helpful. So after design, there was so much of that that we came up with pulling that out and saying a make a head note. So that came out of all the head notes. No head notes would say what to do to make a head. And then there was this little note 
where it applied or so there were these kind of sidebars that were created out of it. And then the other piece that we talked about a little bit, but that attribution is something that I often think about, like, where did this recipe come from? You know, what, why this, obviously, I, you know, I didn't come up with it out of thin air. So what's the experience either in my life, in my history, in our shared history? It's a riff on a Martel Hazan that I've been making for years that I think headnotes are a really important place to recognize our sources. Yeah. And then there's, you know, sometimes you totally need that attribute and sometimes you have to realize that maybe you don't. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm not good at that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, Can you give us an example? Well, yeah. I just feel like with Modern Potluck, I did a lot of attribution. And sometimes it was like, I took this like component from this person and this component from this person and I brought them together and I create this whole new dish. But I don't know. I, I saw some like in an article, somebody said something about it being like generous of spirit in the way a potluck is. But when I wrote it, I didn't think like, oh, I'm attributing so much to so many other people. And then I've also seen a review where it's like, if I wanted so-and-so's recipe, I would have bought their book. And I'm like, but it wasn't their recipe it was inspired by. So I think it's a balance. I I find it's a balance because I, I tend to put in a lot of attribution and sometimes those do get cut because it's Chicken with lemons. Well, or yeah, it's very, it's very classic. Yeah, I know it's a fine line, and you really have to judge and look to your editor to give you um, some guidance on what you really need to include. Because sometimes I, I'll do my research and look at like five, ten sources for a particular concept, and then it's just like, well, how do I attribute all those people? And then it's like, well, maybe you don't. It's like Molly's roast chicken example, where you look at. Who knows how many recipes between 10 mm-hmm. and 50 or something and spend a lot of time with them. And then you go in and you cook your own version or you write up your own version that you know is quite different from everything that's out there. Like in that case, I don't think you need to attribute. I think about Andrea's bullet point. I mean, how many bullets? There were 20, there were 12, I forget. But there's also, you know, back to just how you write that if it is a paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, how many different themes are you going to address in this one headnote? Are you going to talk about the history of the dish, the basics of making it, why it's so good? How, you know, you're going to lose your reader if you're jumping around too much. So your job, I believe, as the author is to figure out what's the either the most important, the most unique, the most compelling, what I haven't done a lot of already in the book, Kate, to your point about balance and and figure that out and then just really polish it up and make it best headnote you can. As you're polishing your manuscript and polishing the book, you know, going through the page proof designs, what are your tricks for smoothing out your headnotes? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about just finding that balance that um, it's even as simple as looking at your chapter as a whole and seeing how you start each paragraph. If you say this is a dish you should make for this, this is a dish you should make for that. You got to change that. You got to mm-hmm. edit that. So mm-hmm. you look for repetition and not just repetition in, in that one headnote for words you reuse, because I'm very guilty of reusing the same word and not noticing it the first time around. So flag um, words that that you're using too much, but then also look at the whole chapter and look at the whole book. And, you know, if you do a word doc, just do a search for that word and it'll flag the number of times that you say, I don't know, nebulous. Maybe that's your, there's, you can use nebulous once or 
maybe twice and that's it. So if you're using it a lot, you know, that might be one that you would edit out. I remember picking up a book and people said, oh, this book is so great. And I looked at the head notes and I said, wow, every single head note starts with this is. That means the person didn't put any time into their head notes. And I automatically think they didn't put time in their head notes. What the heck did they do with the recipe and the instructions? So for me, it's kind of a red flag. Funny that this is, is to me, a sign of you're sitting down to write all your head notes at once. Because you're looking at the recipe and you're saying, okay, mm. this is the recipe for what did you to do? Next recipe. This is the da 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 da. Whereas if you're taking time, and Andrew, I don't think we've really answered this before, and I want to hear <laughs> how you do it, but you know, when do you write your head notes in the process of writing your book? Is it organic as part of each recipe? When's the first sentence go on a page that's going to become a head note? I do it afterwards. I'm gathering all my bullet points, my little mental post-it notes of things that I want to convey in the headnote and then um, somehow condense it so that it'll fit on a page. And I, I do think about what's called a trim size in bookmaking. So I've discussed that with my editor ahead of time. So I'm thinking of how many pages are going to be in a book. I do like a mock-up of the wow. recipe in a particular type face size. So that I'm thinking, okay, gauging how much I can fit on a page. And then I try to write to fit in word. Wow. It doesn't always work. Okay. Because we change things. And then sometimes it's just like, oh, we get to add more pages because Andrea wrote a lot, um, but not <laughs> always. And then I look for um, those things yeah. called echoes that Kate mentioned. And so you can do a search. I remember one time and it was like the word super. And yeah. I was like, yeah. I used the word super like 10 times. Yeah. I think I can find a better word or tasty. But starting head notes with this consecutively is no bueno because, you know, we're, we're writers. Somebody pointed out, I think it was when I worked on the chef's garden book and the chef I worked with, um, pops of, pops of this, pops of that. And he was like, no more pops of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the beauty of having someone who's actually reading your work. Sometimes, you know, editors don't have that bandwidth to do that. And so having someone else read your work and help you edit and polish is really wonderful. One of the things that I do is I read my head notes aloud during the the writing phase so that I say to myself, was that really me? Do I sound convincing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a lot of work, but I find that that is something that works for me. And I suggest that to, to other folks if, you know, get a glass of water and start reading through your book. <laughs> And what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense of just seeing your work from different vantage points, whether you're hearing it and what you're saying, Andrea, just about uh, putting your your book in sort of a layout in Word. Um, I've heard some writers, and I haven't tried this, but I'm intrigued, will just change the font of that document and see if that triggers their eye to catch things that they didn't see before. Interesting. Cool. And I've noticed that when I go from, say... Times New Roman Word document. And if I p paste the same thing into Google Docs, I will find things that I didn't notice. Almost like if you put it into a different format, you can trick your eye to see that you're, oh, I'm reading a, a real book. And so there's like these kind of um, tricks of the trade, I guess. The audio part, the visual part, just tricking yourself to see it from an outsider perspective that you're maybe not the creator of the work, you're reading it for the first time. It's hard to trick yourself to think that way because when we're yeah. the writer, we glaze over things that we just don't notice because we're thinking of these other things in the back of our brain. Another thing I do and recommend is that once the book is in layout, 
stop reading it front to back yeah. every time you read it. I know I do. I glaze over. So I'll yeah. start at the end um, and read the last recipe first and work my way forward or just start in the middle and go both ways because it's interesting because you need to become a reader of your own writing to edit it. And I'm so curious to how many people we know that say they read cookbooks like it's their bedtime reading kind of thing that they sit and just read cookbooks. They're reading the head notes, right? They're reading them for, I'm imagining, I mean, they're, I'm sure they're glancing at the ingredient list and the methods, but they're reading the chapter openers, if there are there. They're reading the front matter, which we'll hopefully spend some time talking about on this podcast, but they are reading those head notes. Those are the little stories. That and the photo is going to help people decide what to make if they make anything. But yeah, somebody I know said like, oh, cookbooks, it's like people's porn. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Okay. Okay. That's another episode. Wait. wait. <laughs> you all want to take into consideration of porn. We have this uh, conversation with Andy Baragani coming up that includes a little porn. But meantime, <laughs> we could have named this podcast. What was it between the covers? But yes. of course, yeah, maybe, I think that was already taken by another literary <laughs> podcast. So, but it's true. It's like a good thing to remember. It's not just people in people's kitchens. It's in their beds. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> as usual, I've like, you know, made mental notes of our conversation for my future writing. Yes, you know, I've learned so much, but I want to ask you one last question before uh, we sign off here. What are your head note pet peeves? Overuse of best or favorite, I guess a lot of superlatives. And I see this not just in head notes, but it, I mean, it's, it's online. It's a, it's a lot online, but then it transfers over to books. What about you, Kate? Exactly what Kristen said. If it's the best of, you really have to be careful when you say something is the best ever, you know, because that's a very particular, that's that person's point of view in that one moment in time. So is it really the best thing that you could ever make ever in your whole life? Probably not. So maybe just tone that part down because it's going to make it harder to buy into the rest of the recipe. It's going to be hard to buy in what you're selling because you're overselling. You're overselling. Yeah. What about you, Molly? I agree 100% about the overselling and the over superlative. But I really am tired of the sort of the gateway idea of these head notes that say, you know, for anyone, and I'm sure I've been guilty of, but, you know, if you have Brussels sprout haters in your family, make this. This will convert any non cauliflower eater kind of thing. It's just <laughs> like, and we didn't really talk about this before, but it brings back that if there's something, you know, I remember I did a recipe that had, you put the chicken liver in it. And I just sort of at the end, I say, or anchovy gets this treatment a lot. People are like, anchovy haters, you know, will even love this. And I, I know there's a time and place for it, but I also think that it's overused. Maybe people don't like anchovies and they shouldn't, you shouldn't be trying to get them mm -hmm. to eat anchovies. I mean, that's their loss, in my opinion. <laughs> um, same with chicken livers. But, you know, just be upfront about what it is and not like make apologies for it. You know, I think it, it gets overused. I mean, there are certainly places where it's very accurate. Andrea? Yeah, I think that a head note that divides rather than unifies people and taste is something that I'm not really into because mm. I don't think I've ever written something, a head note that's like, you know, anchovy haters can, you can deal with them with fish sauce. I mean, I'm just like never, right. I just, you know. There are two right. kinds of people in the world. Right. Yeah. Haters are going to hate. 
you know, <laughs> anchovies. You know, the, another pet peeve is the the too many variations. And this is the one where at the end of reading the head note, you're really not sure how to make the recipe because you were given, well, you can do it this way or you can leave out the anchovies or you can leave out the kale for the kale. So you're left with croutons. That's your salad or whatever it is. And it's kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Because you've given me too many options. I had an editor call me on that. She said, you're the authority. They're coming to you to know how to make it. If you want to offer one or two or whatever, many you know, variations, I tend to put them at the end. But the same thing, if you put all that in there, why are we even following your recipe, you know? Although I will say on the internet, I think it can be different. You're dealing with people mm. who are like, I, I don't like this. Can I use this? Can I, you know, what can I use instead of this? And I don't know. I've started playing around a little bit with more with internet recipes. And so at the bottom, I will offer variations for almost every ingredient but I don't think I would do that in a book. Or at the end or in a burst. Yeah, you know, because I've seen that in your newsletter, Mission Dinner. I think that that's extremely useful because nowadays, especially during the pandemic, there's a lot of substitutions, but that also puts a much weightier task upon the recipe developer's shoulders to cover all bases. Yeah, I mean, those recipes are often so simple that it's from experience. Like I'm not always testing each variation on that recipe, but I've done versions of it before. So, and it's also easy to say like, yes, you can use a red onion instead of a yellow onion. It'll be fine. I just think headnotes are such valuable real estate in a cookbook. Regardless the length um, or whether you decide to do really sparse ones, they're about the most important, one of the most important elements in a book. And you can tell if you look at a book and it feels like they haven't been taken seriously. And I'm here to champion taking time and care with your head notes. Most definitely, Molly. You can't phone in a head note, y'all. You got to work on and polish them. It's actually, that's the fun part. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Andrea. It's a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Everything Cookbooks. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer or got a comment, please send us a note through our website, everythingcookbooks.com or ping us on Instagram at everythingcookbooks. Thanks to our incredible editor, Abby Circatella. If you've got a minute to spare, leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, keep on writing, reading and cooking.